Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. Over the years, I've worked on a few not-for-profit boards, and one of those was the Garvin Research Foundation, where I met today's guest, Mara Jean Tilley. A couple of years after I joined the board, Mara Jean was promoted to director, where she's responsible for fundraising and marketing. In this episode, we explore the art of persuasiveness, because Mara Jean is one of the most humble, persuasive people I know. So skilled is she that dozens of high net worth individuals give millions to medical research. In this episode, you'll find out why. Mara Jean, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. Can you start by reminding me how you went from the performing arts to medical research? Well, how deep do you want this to get? I don't know. Okay, go well, deep. Let's, we'll go deep and then, and then you, can, um, you can pull it back. <laughs> so... I was very lucky to work at Sydney Theatre Company for more than eight and a half years and was madly in love with the theatre, with the company, got to work under some incredible artistic directors in my time there. But whilst there, I lost a partner. A partner passed away from one of the diseases that Garvin researches. And so... That, for me, changed me. And as much as I loved the theatre and the arts, I suddenly went on this deep dive into understanding the importance of medical research. And I'd always had an interest in science and genetics, but it was never something that would have been on my radar. And a job came up at the Garvin Institute, and I applied for it, and I got it. And I've been there for 10 and a half years, And I cannot think of anywhere else where I would rather be because every day I feel like I'm contributing to something that has great societal meaning. It has personal meaning and it is something that I can do really well. And it feels great to be able to do something well and to hopefully support my team to grow and and to be the future leaders of the Institute. Would I be right in guessing this podcast makes you a bit nervous? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Why is that? You've been leading an organisation for a number of years. So tell me, why do you still feel a bit nervous? Don't get me wrong. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Helen, um, and it's wonderful to see you. Thank you for having me. However, whilst I've spent 10 and a half years very actively and passionately publicly promoting the work of the Garvin Institute of Medical Research, I really don't like talking about myself. And you would be in the majority 
Most of the women listening to this podcast would say, I hate talking about myself. You're in a very familiar territory. Why do you think that's the case? Why do we as women in leadership roles hate talking about ourselves? For me personally, I I think it probably stems from two issues. One is that I'm very passionate about my work, my team, my incredible supporters that we facilitate philanthropic donations for Garvin's research from, but I see myself as a facilitator and I see that, that there's a great privilege in being a facilitator of relationships, of funding for impact, but at the end of the day, it's not about me. And I guess the second point is that when you're leading a large team and I lead 45 exceptionally talented and passionate individuals right across the fundraising and marketing team, their work is what I try to represent. And I think many women in leadership feel uncomfortable around the idea of self-promotion that resonates very strongly with me. Very passionate about the cause, very passionate about the people that I work with, but I never want to be seen as that self-promoter in the room. It's not my thing. Do you think it's possible that you've been taught or it's been socialised that in order for a young woman to lead a high-powered team of 45 people, the only way to do that successfully is to not be a self-promoter. Gosh, I personally am very fortunate that that's not my story. And the reason that's not my story is because I have an executive director of the Garvin Institute who happens to be a man who is a fantastic champion for me personally and professionally and also for women in senior leadership roles. But I certainly know that before I stepped into the director role, it was very acceptable for me to be in the background as, you know, the very often throughout my career, the woman behind the man. And I personally didn't have a problem with that because I'm very happy being in partnership with people to get something done, but I can see that that continues to perpetuate a cycle of women not having the presence, perhaps, of their male colleagues and and of other colleagues who perhaps don't feel as empowered to speak up and have presence in in their organisation or within their leadership role. You would see a lot of yous in your current role. So by that, I mean, you're in the leadership role, but you can see a woman in the middle of a team doing all the work who is the competent one. What do you say to her these days? So one of my great regrets in my current role is that I don't get to spend enough time on the ground with my team and with my leadership team. But what I do say to everybody in my team is where do you want to go and what can we do to help you get there? And the other thing that I try to encourage people to focus on is to stop saying sorry. I think women say sorry way too much. I've been guilty of it myself. 
Oh, yes. And I think that, you know, there are practical applications for empowering women and others in the workplace to feel that sense of belonging and empowerment. And you really, I guess you really do have to lead that from the top. For me, you represent dozens of women that I mentor and help train now. Like, you are exactly like so many of them, doing all the work, happily doing all the work, believe that not being a self-promoter is A, a good thing and consistent with your ambition. But the interesting thing to me is watch your growth um, when you took over the top role completely by surprise. You might have had a little bit of an idea that there was going to be change, but you didn't expect to get that role. So we might come back to some of that, but I'm going to jump ahead and say you now work very closely with a particularly high-powered board. Some of the wealthiest, most sought-after men and women in the country are on your board. What have they taught you about leadership? So it's really humbling to work with individuals such as our board directors, but also many of our major donors who really are exceptionally gifted in their diverse areas of expertise and and give so freely and so fully their guidance and their lived experience. And one of the best things that I have learned from my current board is really to be brave. And that's not something that I was necessarily expecting. They have challenged me to come to them with the kind of biggest, boldest strategies we could potentially fathom for Garvin's future. And they have consistently asked the question, what can they do to support that vision? So I know that's not everybody's experience of working with a board, but for me, coming into the role, having been with the organisation for a very long time, but essentially my life changed overnight, to have that incredible backing of people to say, we believe in you, we know you can do this, get on and do it and tell us how we can help, has given me the confidence to grow into the leadership role that I now have that I don't think I would have been able to achieve otherwise because it was quite a shock to go from essentially being a long-term 2IC to being the one who is both privileged to have the opportunity and very aware of of the responsibility and the weight of stepping into that role as a young-ish female. What does being brave do to you psychologically? So you you're in a board meeting, they go, okay, Mara Jane, go bigger and bolder. You know, we're here to back you. You walk out of that board meeting. What do you think? And how do you break that down and go back in next time with that bold plan? Oh, I, th- I think it's wonderful. And I know that we have a team to deliver on on that big, bold vision. And it has demonstrably driven results within the organisation within the past three and a half years. And that's something that I'm terribly proud of and very excited by. I've never 
really been frightened of the challenge and the support of the board, the support of my team, and I have an amazing 2IC who I wouldn't be able to do my work without, and then the community of scientists that I work with, I really get to drive a philanthropic vision for the organisation that has not been possible, perhaps, in the past. And you've got to be tenacious. If you think about the journey from very competent to IC to director, what do you think has been the biggest change in in you as a leader? I've had to let go of perfectionism, which has been really hard. And I have always been pretty flexible as a leader. I'm not, although I have perfectionistic tendencies, I'm not uptight. I know that things change and I'm I actually quite enjoy change. So that's very fortunate for me because things change basically every day. And so letting things be good enough rather than perfect still remains difficult. And I think the thing that I've learned most, particularly in the last two years, is to really trust my instincts and not waste time questioning my instincts. I've got enough runs on the board now when I don't have time to do the deep dive investigation, be brave, trust your instincts and and run with it. The other question I would ask you in, in tandem with that is the public side of what you do. You are required to go from the back room to standing in the foyer in the middle of Darlinghurst in that incredible building and actually hosting a dinner. And you do an excellent job. Tell us about how you went from never speaking in front of a microphone to doing it all the time. I love it. So that helps. I did come from a performing arts background. I say to friends now, you know, get your kids doing drama. It really helps with with confidence, with communication, that, that they'll be able to use it whether they're the next Hollywood star or not. So the joy of getting up on a stage or hosting an activity is all about the opportunity to present something that I'm really passionate about, that I believe in. And that's not about me. It's all about the cause. And so I actually think it's a great joy. It's a great motivator to be able to do that advocacy. The reason why I wanted to talk to you today, aside from my admiration for your work and leadership skills, is to better understand what I think is your core skill, which is your persuasiveness. What do you think makes you so persuasive? If that is true, then I think it comes down to a genuine commitment to the work that I do and a belief in that ultimate cause. What about your ability to build trust? Yes. So the qualities that I pride myself on, I guess, are integrity, equity, authenticity, and passion. And one of the really important things that I do in my role as a facilitator is to 
connect the right people to the right cause and do so in a way that is highly respectful, highly responsive to their needs and at all times is done in partnership with my staff, our scientists, our philanthropists, so that everybody is really working towards a common purpose. So you're talking to a donor who could give them millions over a lifetime or bequeath it to the foundation, and they could give that money to any worthy organisation. There are thousands of not-for-profits in this country that are incredibly worthy. When you go into those discussions, from what I witnessed, you rarely fail. You are pretty good at closing the deal. Tell me how you go about those discussions with a high net worth individual who's looking to donate you know, a piece of their wealth to the Garvin Research Foundation. So it's a huge privilege to work with individuals who have had phenomenal success and want to do good things with that funding, with their hard-earned money. And the most important thing to do in any conversation is to really begin to understand the individual and their personal passions and drivers. One of the benefits to working in medical research is that you are almost always talking to people who've been impacted directly or indirectly by one of the diseases that we research. So it actually becomes a very personal conversation about motivation, about a desire for a better future for children, grandchildren or the community more broadly. And so I think if you can create a safe space for people to talk to the extent that they're comfortable about what it is they're hoping to achieve, appreciating that medical research is a long-term goal. We're not necessarily going to be able to come up for with a clinical intervention for their loved one who might be experiencing a terrible illness right now, but you are creating this safe space to match their need for impact and for hope with the genuine needs of one of Australia's most premier medical research institutes. And then it becomes about the outcomes. And then it becomes about how involved does an individual or a family or a corporation want to be involved in contributing to that impact. And it's a very visceral thing at that level because you have real people with real stories and real experiences sitting in front of you wanting to partner. And it gives me goosebumps to this day just to be involved in those conversations and to do my best to facilitate relationships because it all comes down to relationships. You've had some difficult moments with donors and I'm remembering one particular instance where there was an agreement that wasn't honoured. How do you deal with difficult conversations? Openly, transparently, directly, no silly business. We're all in this together with anything, with particularly with medical research, with science, with clinical trials. There are always 
risks. And so it is critical in philanthropy to develop that direct, honest, transparent relationship where you are reporting back in real time our ability to deliver on a promise. And that is at the heart of everything that we do. My team are deeply dedicated to that approach and our donors and our partners recognise that and they do. They, they trust us. They trust the leadership of the organisation. They know that when they give a gift to Garvin, we will honour the intent of that gift and that's really important to us and to everyone who works at Garvin. And I guess that's the benefit, without doing a sales pitch here, that's the benefit of giving directly to an institute it means that the funds are going directly to the research in real time and can also be tracked. The impact of that funding can be tracked in real time. And there are, at times, really difficult conversations where a hypothesis might have been proven wrong or particularly during COVID, uh, clinical trials had to be paused and it's had to be paused for extended periods of time. But if you treat everybody in that relationship as an equal partner, as a critical component to the outcome, they really, really enjoy having the difficult conversations and being part of the decision-making. And I don't think every organisation gets that quite right. Let's talk about all the scientists and the researchers you work with. So, I mean, in any field there's quirky personalities, but, you know, you're dealing with extraordinary intellect, incredible degrees of passion. There's not enormous financial reward uh, in this. They do it for other reasons. And a lot of them want more money, want more money for their projects. How do you go about talking to the scientists when you're weighing up where the money goes? So the most important thing for a medical research institute, or indeed, I would argue for any organisation, is to have a really clear idea of strategic priorities. And from our perspective, we do. We've we've got more than at any one time. We've got more than forty faculty members. They're our most senior scientific leaders, uh, mentoring the next generation, leading the research endeavour at Garvin, and all of them are worthy of significant support and they're all do doing really important research. And that's where we really lean upon our executive director to help guide us in where the priorities lie in any particular year so that we can, to the best of our ability, attract funding and awareness for those particular areas. But keeping in mind that we're also driven by donor interest and we will be approached by donors and, and corporations who specifically want to support an area of our research. And that's okay too, because as you say, there is never enough funding to go around. There is always significant need. And we know that investing in one area of medical research can have surprising outcomes for other areas of research. So as long as we take that two-step approach. What, is, what are the strategic priorities? And then what are the issues that may land in our lap? Our scientists are pretty excited to work with us to make sure that we can 
promote them to, to the best of our ability, but acknowledging that some diseases are better known than others. Some causes have more publicity and more promotion. So an organisation like the Garvin Institute also needs to be able to generate other funds to be able to support the whole portfolio of research, no matter where the donation income may be flowing. Marajane, I think you are an outstanding leader and your contribution to this country is also outstanding. And it's a privilege to know you. And I'm serious. Should the board ever start to bother or frustrate you uh, or the researchers drive you crazy, um, make sure you give me a call. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, for, thank you for coming in. You're very kind. Thank you. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe, executive producer Jenny Goggin, sound production by Darcy Thompson. 